Hello and welcome to Do The Film Thing, a film appreciation and analysis podcast. I am your host, Victor Omoyo, and this is episode six of season one. In this audio essay, we will be exploring the 2001 feature film Mulholland Drive, written and directed by David Lynch, and starring Naomi Watts, Laura Herring, Justin Thoreau, Ann Miller, Mark Pellegrino, Monty Montgomery, Melissa George, Patrick Fischler, and Bonnie Ahrens. Aspiring actress Betty Elms, played by Naomi Watts, arrives in Hollywood, California, with dreams of becoming a successful movie star. A mysterious dark-haired woman, played by Laura Herring, suffers from amnesia as a result from a vehicular accident. Together, the two women embark on a quest to uncover the truth behind the mystery woman's identity. Meanwhile, film director Adam Kesher, played by Justin Thoreau, finds that his own production is slipping from his control by a group of mobsters who force him to cast one particular actress. What unfolds in the city of dreams and desires for these denizens of Tinseltown? What is real and what is imaginary? Who ascends to the sanctum of stardom and who ultimately languishes in obscurity? Mulholland Drive, much like David Lynch's other surreal works such as Blue Velvet, Lost Highway, Inland Empire, and of course Twin Peaks, is wide open to interpretation. Critics and audiences alike have offered multiple perspectives on the meanings behind Lynch's dark mystery film in the years since its release. Lynch himself has famously refused to offer any authoritative explanations for his films, In the 2005 edition of the book, Lynch on Lynch, filmmaker and writer Chris Rodley writes as part of his interview with the director that, quote, Lynch is unwilling slash unable to analyze the movie because he knows that if the truth were revealed, the dream that is Mulholland Drive would die. In that respect, words are the movie's enemy, Lynch's own pronouncements potentially being the deadliest of all, end quote. And yet, here I am, about to offer my own words about his film. My audio essay is not intended to be a definitive explainer of Mulholland Drive. I do not believe that there is one true and correct perspective that solves the mysteries of the movie. I'm only offering my own interpretation of the film's narrative, which is part of why I enjoy Lynch's films so much. Perhaps my point of view may be similar to yours, or it may be entirely different. But in any event, let us dive into this mesmerizing and mysterious movie. To start, there are two distinct parts that comprise the whole of the two-and-a-half-hour narrative of Mulholland Drive, both of which center on two different women played by the same actress, Naomi Watts. The first two hours of the story are dedicated to Betty Elms, an aspiring actress from Canada who sets out to fulfill her ambitions of becoming a professional actress in Hollywood. The last 30 minutes of the film center on Diane Selwyn, an embittered, struggling actress whose dire reality does not live up to the lofty heights of her dreams. The prevailing theme of the film explores control, both a false sense of it and the complete loss of it. Both Betty Elms and Diane Selwyn's narratives respectively play with the desires of having control in one's imagination 
and the utter lack of control in one's waking life. We will compare and contrast both of their stories henceforth. For example, the relationship between Betty and the mysterious amnesiac woman is one of complete dependency. Soon after Betty arrives at her aunt's house in Hollywood, she's surprised to find the mysterious woman in the bathroom. After several moments when the awkwardness of the situation subsides, Betty asks the woman her name, to which the mystery lady does not remember. The woman glances at a poster of the classic film noir Gilda starring Rita Hayworth and tells Betty that her name is Rita. Prior to Rita's encounter with Betty, on the previous night, Rita escaped from some mobsters who were about to shoot her on Mulholland Drive when a car full of reckless teenagers collided head-on with their limousine, killing everyone else instantly. She emerged from the wreck, having no memory of her own identity, no control over the direction of her life from that instant. After Betty learns about Rita's accident, she decides to help her amnesiac friend with figuring out the mystery behind her actual identity. From here, Betty takes charge with a plucky can-do attitude that reminds one of Nancy Drew, with Rita following along with doe-eyed dependency. Compared to what we eventually see in Diane's reality, a helpless Rita is what she strongly prefers. In Diane's dream when she is Betty, Betty is presented as the active protagonist who takes initiative and puts her own name out into the forefront. She is someone who wants to be seen, heard, and recognized as an actress, while Rita, on the other hand, is but a hapless bit player, someone with no name, no identity, no value, and crucially, no agency. It is Betty who persuades Rita to accompany her in solving the mystery of her real identity. Rita does not take this initiative on her own. Betty is who truly matters. This is how Diane would rather see herself. An example of Diane's desired self-perception is also seen in Betty's audition, in which she delivers an arresting and sensually charged performance that blows away the producers and casting agents in the room. Betty is well on her way to realizing her acting ambitions, however, in the next scene, she appears to be suddenly struck with apprehension when she locks eyes with the film director, Adam Kesher. She runs away when Adam glances at her for the second time, much to the confusion of the casting agents. I read this moment as an indication of Diane's real-life fears creeping into the idyllic dreamscape of her preferred reality. A reflection of Diane's failed and unrealized acting dreams, especially in light of how the Adam Kesher in her reality relates to her. Switching gears to Diane Selwyn, her dreams as Betty Elms pales in comparison to the sad emptiness of her own real-life situation. Unlike the intrepid and fortunate Betty, who displays her true acting talents successfully, Diane has not had the same luck. Instead, she mentions that she has only taken small roles that her friend Camilla Rhodes has tossed her way, like breadcrumbs to a bird. Camilla Rhodes is the real version of Rita that exists in Diane's reality and is also played by Laura Herring. Looking back to the moment where Diane as Betty ran away from Adam's movie set, perhaps this symbolizes her own subconscious feelings that she is unworthy of quality acting roles. 
or that her level of success simply cannot reach that of the star that is Camilla Rhodes. There are two instances where Diane's utter lack of control is reflected in her unrequited romantic desires towards Camilla. First, there's a scene where Diane is standing off to the sidelines on the film set of Adam's movie where he's directing Camilla and another actor. Adam shows the male actor how to perform a kiss to Camilla more convincingly, and both the director and the actress are enjoying the rehearsal process just a little too much, reveling in their flirtatiousness. It is obvious that they are just riling up Diane, who stares helplessly with seething jealousy. This scene is followed with an upset Diane, alone in her dingy apartment, furiously masturbating while the points of view shots from her perspective shift in and out of focus. The struggle is uncomfortably real. In comparing and contrasting the two scenes with Diane and Betty on Adam's movie set, the former calls back Betty's apprehension to Adam when he looks at her. In both the Betty-led dream and the Diane-led reality, both women wither in the face of the director. Neither woman is able to exercise any level of control or agency whenever Adam is involved. Not even in Diane's idealistic dreams as Betty can she hope to get one over the director. Although this does not mean that Adam is completely untouchable. We'll explore this later. Now there's another scene where Diane's lack of control is highlighted in the context of her attraction to Camilla. Camilla invites Diane to a dinner party on Mulholland Drive and has a limousine bring her there. Diane is clearly in love with the movie star, and we are briefly led to believe that the two women will officially become an item. However, in what seems to be a cruel joke at Diane's expense, Camilla brings her to the dinner party which happens to be at Adam's house, and both the director and star share a loving kiss which feels like a petty slight to minimize Diane. The painfully awkward encounter continues when both Adam and Camilla flaunt their relationship in Diane's face, kissing and giggling in full display. At one point, another woman approaches Camilla and lays a passionate kiss on her lips, a further twisting of the knife in Diane's heart. And as if that weren't enough, Adam announces to the dinner guests that he and Camilla are now engaged, just straight up kicking poor Diane when she's down, her entire time at the dinner nothing but an excruciating and embarrassing experience. This entire scene is a far cry from Betty's control of Rita's situation. In Betty's narrative, Rita remembers the name Diane Selwyn when both she and Betty are at a diner. Their investigation soon leads them to an apartment belonging to a woman named Diane Selwyn. When they arrive, they find the dead body of the woman in her bed. We do not see the woman's face. Immediately after this event, when Betty and Rita return home, Betty puts a blonde wig on Rita's head. Given the real Diane's attraction to Camilla, this instance appears to be Diane as Betty asserting control over the object of her affections, replacing an uninterested Camilla with a more idealized and pliable version in the form of a blonde Rita. 
To me, this is also a subtle way of Diane as Betty exercising a measure of control in how she wants to view herself, in the sense that Diane is only a success in her own dreams when she is Betty, so why not have the object of her desires, Camilla, also be reflective of this? She does not just want to have Camilla. In her real life as Diane, she wants to be Camilla in every sense, as successful, as popular, as beautiful. So why not have Rita be a reflection of Betty herself? Furthermore, the dead body of the woman who shares the name Diane Selwyn in Betty's dream is also representative of the real Diane's deep-seated want and need to be greater than what she is in her life. To do away with the dead-end Diane Selwyn and embrace the identity of the lively Betty Elms. Betty and Rita eventually get intimate, their mutual attraction having been built up over the course of their time together. Later that night, at two in the morning, Rita wakes up Betty, insisting that they both go to a theater called Club Silencio. There, they watch as the MC, played by Richard Green, explains that everything they and the rest of the patrons are hearing is pre-recorded. There are no actual live performances. Then, a singer, Rebecca Del Rio, emerges on the stage and sings Roy Orbison's song, Crying, in Spanish before collapsing. Her performance, too, is an illusion, for it turns out that she was lip-syncing her own vocals. The recording keeps playing. We then see the appearance of a small blue box and a blue key. I consider this unusual sequence as yet another example of the faux sense of control that Diane has in her dreams as Betty. Much like the pre-recorded music and sounds played in Club Silencio, as well as the lip-synced performance by Rebecca Del Rio, Diane is also faking by merely pretending to be someone whom she is not. As Betty, Diane in her dreams assumes the role of a dynamic, confident, and ambitious person. She is the hero in her own constructed story, and practically follows the script of a plucky heroine, helping the distressed damsel that is Rita. The Roy Orbison song, Crying, also alludes to Diane's unrequited feelings towards Camilla. In English, part of the lyrics translate to, quote, When you said so long, left me standing all alone, alone and crying, crying, crying. For you don't love me, and I'll always be crying over you. End quote. On another level, I also view the Club Silencio sequence as representative of the film viewing experience itself, in the sense that as audience members, we know what we are seeing is false, yet we feel real emotions and are moved by the fiction that we're engaged with. And so it goes with Betty and Rita, both moved to tears by Rebecca Del Rio's pre-recorded performance. Along with Betty slash Diane and Rita slash Camilla, the character of Adam also experiences a loss of control solely in Diane's dream as Betty. For his current film, Adam is forced by a group of mobsters to cast an actress named Camilla Rhodes, this time played by an entirely different woman in Melissa George. 
The often repeated declaration slash demand by the menacing thugs is, This is the girl. There's a scene where Adam and a group of film producers are meeting with two of the mobsters, one of whom is played by Angelo Badalamenti, who also composed the score for Mulholland Drive. Badalamenti is credited in the film as Luigi Castigliani. In an effort to impress the apparently mercurial and stone-faced Luigi, one of the producers offers him an espresso, noting the mobster's high and exacting standards for coffee. When Luigi takes a sip, he slowly and miserably spits out the espresso on a napkin, muttering the word, shit, much to the mortified horror of the producers and to the confusion of Adam. Now, looking at this flat-out weird and humorously cringe-inducing scene, to me it serves as a way for Diane, as Betty, to wreak a little revenge on the director, even if it's just in her imagination. Since Diane has no control over her own acting career, why should Adam retain any control over his own film? Going back to Adam, his loss of control also extends to his marriage. After having his film hijacked by the mobsters, he drives home only to find his wife sleeping with the pool cleaner, played by Billy Ray Cyrus. When Adam takes his wife's jewelry box and smears paint on the contents inside, the pool cleaner punches Adam in response. Adam drives away defeated, his achy-breaky heart in tatters. As if that weren't enough, the mobsters also freeze his accounts while he's hiding out at a hotel, and his assistant calls him to tell him to meet with a mysterious man only known as the Cowboy, who is played by Monty Montgomery. Adam's meeting with the cowboy is perhaps the strangest and most unsettling encounter in the entire film. They meet at the dead of night in the middle of an empty corral, and the cowboy, speaking in a vaguely threatening and halting monotone, tells Adam that he will cast Camilla Rhodes in his movie, that he will say, This is the girl. The cowboy makes it clear that this is the only casting choice that Adam has no say over, and he ends by saying, quote, You will see me one more time if you do good. You will see me two more times if you do bad. End quote. This particular line does not actually apply to Adam, for it applies directly to Diane. Shortly after the Club Silencio sequence I discussed earlier, we see the second appearance of the cowboy, who stands in the doorway of Diane's bedroom and tells her to wake up, which begins her story in the last 30 minutes of the film. The cowboy also makes his third appearance at Adam and Camilla's house party, walking by in the background while Diane stews in humiliation. Thinking about these instances with the cowboy, perhaps he personifies Diane's guilt in a way, as she eventually hires a hitman, played by Mark Pellegrino, to kill Camilla. Diane shows him the actress's headshot, telling him, This is the girl. The hitman shows Diane a blue key, which he says she will have once the job is done. We later see that same key on her living room table. Perhaps the cowboy's two subsequent appearances following his first meeting with Adam also meant that Adam did bad, and that he not only flaunted his relationship with Camilla in Diane's face, 
but also did not even bother to give her a fair chance at the spotlight. And so, what could be a more hurtful way for Adam to lose control over his film in Diane's reality than to take away his it girl? Of course, Diane does not even get to experience any sorts of satisfaction as she is driven to the brink of madness and eventually takes her own life. Her body on her bed positioned exactly like the Diane Selwyn in Betty's story. Life imitating dreams. Or is it the other way around? In the interviews featured on the Criterion Collection edition of Mulholland Drive, David Lynch and other key figures involved in the film's production discuss the origins of the film. Lynch originally planned for Mulholland Drive to be a television series and gave the unfinished pilot episode to ABC, which ultimately turned it down. Lynch eventually secured funding from producer Pierre Edelman, and after a period where Lynch initially had zero ideas on how to make the project, the film got underway. Naomi Watts, in her interview alongside Lynch, discussed her challenging experiences auditioning for roles and facing rejection for 10 years in Hollywood before finally meeting the director. We can certainly see her frustrations channeled in her performance as Diane, as well as her exhilaration in playing a lead role as Betty. Watts also mentions in her interview with Criterion that a two-hour TV pilot was filmed and that she didn't know that she would be playing both Diane Selwyn and Betty Elms, but that she thought that she would just be playing Diane. Watts also says that she thought Diane would be the true character, while Betty is her alter ego, the dream she wanted, which is an interpretation commonly shared among fans of the film, myself included. Laura Herring also shared in her interview how her early involvement in the project was Lynchian in and of itself, as much like her character Rita, she had a car accident while on her way to meeting the director, and she called Lynch to inform him that she couldn't make it that day. Lynch went on to write a scene featuring her character Rita involved in the car wreck we see at the beginning of the film. Justin Thoreau, who plays Adam, discusses his experiences in the Criterion interview featurette, filming his character's meeting with the cowboy, played by David Lynch's friend and producer, Monty Montgomery. Thoreau explains how Montgomery actually could not memorize his lines at all, which led to Thoreau having cue cards taped to himself so that Montgomery could read his lines. Knowing this fact does make their scene even more memorable, as Montgomery's halting delivery lends even more of an unsettling, strange vibe to their exchange, and it is very much on brand with the surreal oddities that permeate David Lynch's work. Now because Mulholland Drive was originally planned to be a TV show, that explains the brief appearances of a couple of characters early in the film. For instance, we see the actor Robert Forster appear as one of the detectives investigating the car crash that Rita escaped from. It essentially amounts to a cameo appearance. We also have another notable scene early on, which features Patrick Fischler and Michael Cook, respectively playing two men, Dan and Herb. They are at a diner, and Dan, with increasing dread, explains to Herb that he wants to confront a frightening figure that resides at the back of the diner's parking lot. 
When the two men trepidatiously walked towards the back of the diner, a horrifying, burnt-looking vagrant pops out from the corner like Mortal Kombat sound designer Dan Forden, minus the toasty. Dan collapses in fright. Fun fact, the demonic-looking vagrant is played by Bonnie Ahrens, who notably stars as a title character in the 2018 horror film The Nun, as well as its 2023 sequel. When all is said and done, Mulholland Drive is my favorite David Lynch film, and having watched it multiple times, I always emerge with a greater appreciation for this strange and altogether alluring picture. When it comes to the joy of engaging with the film, Naomi Watts sums it up best in her interview with Criterion, saying, quote, Lynch's theory is that we don't have to have the same understanding. Different things appeal to different people at different times. It's not all logical and making perfect sense, but if it's real and true, it links up and you can connect. End quote. And that concludes this week's episode of Do The Film Thing. Thank you so much for listening. And if you enjoyed this episode, please tune in next Sunday for episode 7 of season 1. You can also follow the show on all sorts of podcasting platforms, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Amazon Music, and others. You can also email the show at dothefilmthing at gmail.com, and you can follow Do The Film Thing on Instagram at dothefilmthing. Once again, my name is Victor Omoyo, and remember to do the film thing always. Always.